The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The hospitality industry is one of the fastest growing industries in an improving economy. There are new career opportunities popping up in restaurants, hotels, and travel. Get the inside scoop today. Welcome to the Hospitality News Network with Stephen Nicole. Our hope is that you'll look at this industry in a whole new light. Now, here's your host, Stephen Nicole. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Hospitality Industry News Network. I'm your host, Stephen Nicole. It's October 12th here in Canada, which means it's Thanksgiving Day. So for all our Canadian listeners out there, happy Thanksgiving. Today we've got an awesome show lined up. We've got somebody who knows a lot about beer. He's been writing about it for, he's been in the beer business and malt beverage industry for over 25 years. He's written about the brewing industry in such magazines as Restaurant Management, Top Shelf Magazines, is where he was a contributing editor. He's written for Beverage Media, New Brewer, Beverage Dynamics, and All About Beer magazine. He even has a beautiful blog. I checked it out this morning, beerbasics.com. If you want to know anything about beer, how it's made, different beers from different countries, he's got it all there on his website. He's a member of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, Authors Guild, National Writers Union, North American Guild of Beer Writers, and is also a beer judge certification program accredited recognized beer judge and i'll have to ask him how he got that that doesn't sound like a bad job to me he was awarded a silver quill and tankard award by the north american guild of beer writers at the 1999 great american beer festival and he's written two books he has one on the way beer basics his first book in july 1995 was released and cooking and eating with beer 1997 it was released This would be a great book because he talked to a great number of chefs and worked with different recipes and different beers that would go along with that food. So we've heard of food and wine pairing. This would be a book about beer and food pairing. How's that? He's he's an expert on the emergence of microbreweries. And I could test to myself for for my own experience that – Early on, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I used to go to the beer store and there used to be a choice of about five beers. Now there's hundreds of beers to choose from. He's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about how it all started. Peter LaFrance, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I I want to get started and ask you, how did this phenomenon start? I mean, obviously craft beers and home brewing is, is taking off like, like crazy. How did it become so popular in the 70s? How did it start? Well, <clears throat> they, essentially, a lot of things were happening uh, 
in uh, in North America particularly, but also in Europe in the, in the late part of the 60s. There was a, a good deal of, of rebellion going on. There was a, a, a lot of societal changes, uh, subcultures growing and, and that sort of thing. But there was also a, an ability... Uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, as, as well as uh, North Americans, to to do a lot of traveling, and uh, uh, towards the uh, uh, the end, I believe it was the end of the 70s. There, folks like Freddie Laker and, and people were you could fly to to, to Europe for fifty dollars and that that type that. of thing, and back and forth. So there was an exposure to uh, things European by people who were able to uh, to, to get over and do that. And also, the, the, what they were doing was that they'd go over, they'd taste uh, the beers and the foods and the wines, they'd come back uh, to the United States and Canada and say, well, geez, uh, why can't we find these types of things here? And the reason they couldn't was because uh, going out of the 50s into the 60s and early 70s, there was a, a, a sense as far as, as what we ate and drank was conformity. Um, the TV dinner, uh, the start of uh, the beginnings of, of fast food, uh, the very simple um, way of, of if you were going to, to have a, something celebratory, it was meat, potatoes, and, and vegetables. Um, it was a celebration of, of after uh, the, uh, the Second World War and, and, and Korea. It was, it was fun to be able to relax and the uh, object was to get out of the kitchen, and so they had all of these wonderful things like dishwashers and, and as I say, uh, the beginnings of processed foods because it was inexpensive as well, and the same with beer. And so these young folks were coming back from Europe, and they couldn't find it here. And so they were kind of asking around. Now, this is only, again, not a whole bunch of people, but enough to, to influence uh, particularly the media and asking questions, what's hot? Yes. And it was imported beers. Um, on the West Coast, they were very uh, quick to catch on uh, to these imported beers and to the different uh, tastes and flavors. And it was, it was kind of a, a bit of a demand there. But I think one of the big points that started homebrewing was uh, the tax man. And uh, when, uh, for one example, uh, the the fellow who started New Albion Brewing, which was on on record, I believe, one of the first uh, microbrewers to begin brewing in the the late 70s, a fellow by the name of Jack McAuliffe, he started out uh, as a nuclear submarine technician in Scotland uh, with the U.S. Navy there. And at the time, Scotland and the UK, the rest of the UK, had a pretty stiff uh, tax tariff on beer by alcohol content. Yes. And so homebrewing was was very popular. <laughs> yes. And he caught on in Scotland, and he came back to the U.S. and was uh, looking to homebrew, of course, and and looking for ingredients. And. As I'm sure a lot of your listeners, the Canadian listeners, know that the taxes up there have always been very, very high yes. on, on <laughs> beer. And home brewing was very popular then and has always been popular in, in a lot of the regions out in the West especially. Uh, and 
Jack, when he got back here, was in uh, Berkeley, California, looking for ingredients. And he found uh, malt extract, which is what, when you start out on brewing, you start out with malt extract and yeast and maybe a a little hops to give it some flavor. And at that time, the malt extract was from an organization called Wine Art, which was headquartered, uh, I believe, in Ontario. So that was how he started to get his his uh, uh, home brewing okay. together, and he so, uh, got together with a, <clears throat> a couple of women who were also interested in it. And he was a technician out again, as I said, out that had worked on nuclear subs. So he liked problem solving, and he also liked tinkering. And he started to uh, to say, "Well, geez, you know, maybe I should make a." Um, a brewery. But while this was happening, the taxman on the U.S. side um, had always insisted that if you were a home brewer, you had to pay taxes on any beer that you made. And there was uh, a part of the IRS code that said if you were caught even selling it, uh, you could be fined $1,000 to $5,000, etc., etc. Okay. Well, uh, Alan Cranston in H.R. House Rule 1337, I believe it was, uh, introduced uh, a little teeny paragraph in there. And why he did it, I don't know. The book I'm working on, Five Gallons of Beer That Changed uh, uh, America Forever, is, is looking into that. But it was just a little paragraph. And all it did was say that the United States Internal Revenue Code allowed households of one person to brew 200 gallons of beer a year tax-free and if you had one two people in the household two adults it was 400 gallons of beer tax-free so that was plenty of beer to last quite a long time exactly exactly so simply rescinding something that had been done there since the the great experiment we had here a prohibition uh so once that was lifted People, on, because they didn't understand the law, figured, well, now homebrewing is legal. And it was a thumb in the nose to uh, the big breweries. There was a lot of rebellion in the air. <clears throat> and there was a, a sense of, of counterculture collectiveness and also creativity. And those things came together along with the development, uh, at that time, the very early development of communicating uh, by web and web groups. And the ability to, a lot of these people were were technicians, a lot of them weren't, a lot of them were counterculture people, but the ability to communicate quickly and this fascination with making something uh, really was the, the groundswell of how homebrewing got started uh, in the United States, anyway. Well, I could attest to going to Europe when I was uh, 18 years old, and, uh, you know, the Volkswagen vans and and mm-hmm. camping around Europe for 45 days, and, uh, you know, we just wanted to try the different beer everywhere we went, and that was back in mm-hmm. 1977, mm-hmm. and uh, so I know where you're, and, and you're coming from on that. People to, uh, there were plenty uh, if you were um, not terribly... Uh, uh, if you didn't stick out too much, if you just took things easy, the other folks are willing to show you um, all kinds of, oh, you have to come see my, my cousin's beer house or, oh, this restaurant over here. Uh, we, My friend and I, we always hang out here and watch folks. And, yes. oh, sure, the, to experience Europe 
um, to kind of slow down, to to switch uh, gears uh, mentally in looking in the world at the world, I think was was very important for people who could do it at that time and yes. come back and bring that bring that appreciation with them. Definitely. Oh, I think so. And you know, like you mentioned too about the information and the communication nowadays with the internet and everything. If you want to find something out or get some information on how to do something. And I like that fact that you do 400 gallons for a couple for a year tax-free. That's a lot of, uh, lots, lots of beer. Mm-hmm. Well, wow. well <clears throat> as I, that, is a, that is what I, that is what I believe. Now, it, it might be 100, 200 or 200, 400, but, um, it's still a lot. I, I'm not totally, but it's, it's a bit, it's a bit more than it's, it's enough to, if it was one person, certainly, you're absolutely right. But the fun thing about homebrewing is that it's a communal thing. And because, you, especially if you're just starting out, you've got bottles, to 12-ounce bottles to fill. Most people don't start out making a keg system. And so you've Peter, got all those bottles to wash and Peter, cap. i, I got to cut in for a second. Peter, I just got to cut in for a commercial break. Sure. Hold that thought. We'll get back to you at the other end of two minutes, and we're going to talk about how restaurants came into play as well with the, the new beers oh, out great. there. All Absolutely. right? Okay, yep. we'll see you at the other end of two minutes. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you love to travel? Do you love adventure so much that when you read about it, you cannot stop until you have finished? Most of all, though, do you like to read a memoir that is totally honest and doesn't cover up anything? The author just tells it like it is. Stephen Nicole's first book, You Only Live Once, will fulfill your wish. Whether you're thinking of a career in the hospitality industry or just want to read a personal, upfront, no-holes-barred memoir, this book will whet your appetite. Go to stephennicole.com to order your copy or email him directly for an autographed copy. That's stephennicole, N-I-C-O-L-L-E dot com. A life coach, Stephen Nicole can be contacted to help you get what you want in life. 17 years from the time he took a bartending course, Stephen traveled around working in the hospitality industry, moving up the ladder as he went along, tasting both the bitter and the sweet. Along the way, Stephen rode the ebb and flow from the vibrant 80s through the turbulent 90s. Stephen found what his heart was truly looking for to begin a new chapter in his life. For a free intake interview, you can mail Stephen directly to set up a time at ssnicole, N-I-C-O-L-L-E, at rogers.com. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to the Hospitality News Network. We'd love to hear from you with questions or comments about the show. Drop us a line at ssnicole at rogers.com. That's ssnicole, N-I-C-O-L-L-E, at rogers.com. Now, back to the Hospitality News Network. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Hospitality Industry News Network. Our guest today is Peter LaFrance. He's talking all about 
the emergence of microbreweries and craft beers. And we're having a great little conversation here right now. He's very knowledgeable. If you missed the first part of the show, this show will be archived on my webpage within a few hours after the show, and you'll be able to listen to its entirety on my webpage or iTunes, Stitcher, or tuned in, also Google Play. So, and if you have any questions, you could email me at ssnicole at rogers.com, S-S-N-I-C-O-L-L-E at rogers.com. Love to hear your comments. Peter, we're going to talk about how microbreweries and all that affected the restaurant industry. What developed from it? Well, the when once the the microbreweries, uh, uh, which we're we're starting to talk now in the early to mid '80s, began putting out product. Uh, there were a number of problems that they had with, that they immediately uh, understood was distribution uh, and uh, getting a, their uh, the word out about the types of beers that they had because. Uh, during that time, this was when uh, particularly Anheuser-Busch uh, controlled and over uh, 90%, 95% of the market. And one of the ways that they would do that would, go, would be to go into restaurants, pubs, bars, and taverns uh, with uh, a couple of their beers and kind of challenge the beverage manager to a taste test. And inevitably... Um, because of the quality of the beers, if the beer was of such a quality, it would uh, certainly impress the Bev manager, and they'd say, geez, you know, uh, <clears throat> we'd like to, we'd really like to, to, to try this beer, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of tough to, to break a new beer in. We've, we've got our regular lines here, we've got our regular uh, casings uh, and this type of thing, and one of the tactics was for the small brewer to say, well, listen, I'll tell you what, why don't we have a beer dinner? And that way, your high rollers, you've got your list of, of the people that, that come in here all the time, the regulars, we'll give them a special. On you, well, we'll give you the, we'll work away so that you can use the beer and pair it up with things that are already on your menu, and that way folks uh, can get uh, an introduction to it. And the beer dinner uh, allowed the restaurants to... Uh, increased their bottom line, and it gave the exposure to uh, the small breweries. Now, while this was going on, particularly on the West Coast, uh, Oregon, uh, Northern California, the concept of what was called a brew pub came about. Um, there's, uh, I've, I'm doing, uh, in my research, uh, they tell me that a fellow uh, by the name of Bert Grant started the Yakima Brewing Company, and that that was the first uh, licensed brew pub, which meant that okay. you had a brewery attached to a restaurant. Yes. And, or if you want to think about it, a restaurant with a brewery attached to it. Uh, and what this did is it certainly said to the brewery, well, to someone putting this together, if you worked your food and your, and your beer together, uh, the chances of your survival... Uh, certainly increased because with a brewery attached to a restaurant, you became a destination. Uh, the uh, the life of a of a restaurant starting up, uh, at least in the in the, the megalopolis here on the East Coast, uh, if you last three years, you know you're an old man, huh. and you're starting to be able to to, uh, to to not have to put all of your money back into the business. 
And so this gave the brew pub, this gave them a chance uh, to increase uh, their margin. Now, while this was happening, um, the uh, interest in professional cooking, uh, the uh, culinary, uh, the CIA, Johnson & Wales, uh, Necky, over here on the East Coast, uh, I believe it's with Greystone, uh, out on the West Coast, where the CIA has their headquarters, uh, Culinary Institute of America. Yes. Um, not the foggy bottom people. But <laughs> young people started to be interested in going to uh, the cooking schools and becoming qualified. And these were people who knew about uh, microbeers. They they'd yes. started uh, to drink them. And so they brought that into the professional world as well. So you had these these events happening, and all together, then the growth of the brew pub. Uh, when I've I've interviewed uh, Fritz Maytag, the founder of uh, Anchor Beer out in California, and during one of the interviews, he said that uh, when he was asked back then uh, by people who wanted to start a brewery and started to get into micro beer to to, to micro brew, uh, what would he suggest to do, and the thing that he, uh, without a doubt, would immediately suggest it was a brew pub. Yes. Uh, And it brought uh, an attention, at the same time it brought attention to local foods and what was available locally, because, again, we're talking bottom line here. And a brew pub, you were looking at the bottom line not only for the brewery but for the restaurant as well. You wanted to keep things simple. And basic, and the West Coast had that nailed in the 90s. Uh, it was it was amazing. Uh, here on the East Coast, uh, New York held on to the to the French cuisine and, and that type of of dining uh, for way too long, and we were a little slow in picking up uh, the, the the whole micro uh, micro beer thing to begin with, but also the the brew pubs. Uh, the brew pubs that we had in Manhattan, uh, which were the first uh, of the brew pubs in the 90s. There were, I believe, 12 or 13 of them, and uh, none of them exist now. And, yes. <clears throat> and they all died for different reasons, uh, not because of bad food or bad beer, um, but for others, um, which is, a again, you'll have to buy my book. To, there's, a different, uh, there's a different mindset for with Western people out in the West Coast than there is Eastern. Because I oh, guess they're more laid back. Yeah, with, they're laid back. And, you know, they, they want to try new things. And I know I lived out West, so, you know, it's a whole different atmosphere. Uh, it is, <clears throat> pardon me, it's, it's less, uh, less rigid because the, there's always the, the East Coast to point at and laugh. So they have a chance to to say you know to heck with them we're gonna we're gonna try this and uh, particularly uh, in the Portland Oregon area uh, there was a a looking when they were looking at lo- at local beers and and the brew pubs I believe the McMenamin brothers uh, put together a, a multi f- uh, food service operation I think they have three or four stores uh, brew pubs if I'm not mistaken. But they really did. They began that type of, of appreciation of local beer, local food, and uh, a sense of, in wine, it's called a terroir. 
yes. and your your brewery, your your uh, brew pub there has to take on the flavor of of the local area there, and um, that that really brings customers in. Uh, it makes it a destination, and particularly uh, today, uh, the brew pub has has certainly uh, survived to that point. Um, the interest in uh, white tablecloth restaurants with uh, the microbreweries, uh, they now have uh, beer menus that compare to some of the wine menus. Yes. Um, so that's an interesting way of, of looking at things. And there is a crossover uh, of understanding about wine uh, and beer, beer people understanding wine people. Uh, an anecdote, if I may um, tell, is, was when uh, Kevin Israeli was uh, sommelier at Windows on the World, in the, world yes. trade, the old World Trade Centers. Yes. They had a beer event there, I believe it was in 1990, and uh, I was there, Fritz Maytag was there, uh, uh, some of the other, Ken Grossman, some of the other brewers nice. from the small breweries. <clears throat> and I was talking uh, again with uh, Maytag about uh, his seasonal beer that they always do once a year. Uh, they do it their special ale, they call it. And so yes. I said to, to him, there was other journalists hanging around, I said to him, is it going to be more like a Burgundy or a Bordeaux? And uh, one of the uh, chaps standing next to us pipes up and says, we're here to talk about beer, not wine. And Maytag gives him one of these, you know, kind of head-to-toe look and back up again and says to him, quite frankly, he says, we're all friends in fermentation. Yes, yes, that's very good. I like that. Excellent. And and so uh, they, the, the wine... People uh, understood beer tastings, and, and except for spitting. Harriet yes. Lembeck, who was one of the writers at the New York Times, went to a beer tasting with her in 1991, and she insisted on spitting the beer after after uh, right, after eh? drinking it, putting it in her mouth. And I told her, I told you, it has to resonate in the passages of yes. your your nasal passages. You can't you can't. But she insisted on spitting. Wow, I can't even do that with wine. Never mind beer. Uh, well, now you're a bad boy. Yes, I know. But what can I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I lo- so the, you know, and, and the farm-to-table people now have, have really uh, focused uh, on um, local and, and bringing in the local beers. So it's, uh, I find it interesting that, that a very, the right now microbrewers are only still only about 12% of all the beer sold in North America and uh, what people who would be called foodies are really only about 6 or 7% wow. of, of the folks and yet it makes such an influence in the media and uh, I'll point to social media particularly to, to that uh, but it has certainly drawn the attention of people to food and beer and uh, the uh, food service people have not been uh, long in figuring that out, that's for sure. Now, what I'd like to talk about in the next segment, uh, Peter, because we're just about to go on commercial break, <clears throat> sorry, is the uh, craft beer, uh, craft industry, craft beer industry, where you see it heading in the next five years. Okay, I'd like to, great. I'd like to ask you that question because, uh, you know, with the way things are going, you said 12%, that could, you know, 
that could hit a, a point where it's going to explode, obviously. Mm-hmm. So we'll get back mm-hmm. to the other end of two minutes here. This is Steve Nicole with the Hospitality Industry Network. Stay tuned. We're going to be back with you after two minutes with Peter LaFrance. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Do you love to travel? Do you love adventure so much that when you read about it, you cannot stop until you have finished? Most of all, though, do you like to read a memoir that is totally honest and doesn't cover up anything? The author just tells it like it is. Stephen Nicole's first book, You Only Live Once, will fulfill your wish. Whether you're thinking of a career in the hospitality industry or just want to read a personal, upfront, no-holes-barred memoir, this book will whet your appetite. Go to stephennicole.com to order your copy or email him directly for an autographed copy. That's Stephen Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-L-E dot com. A life coach, Stephen Nicole can be contacted to help you get what you want in life. 17 years from the time he took a bartending course, Stephen traveled around working in the hospitality industry, moving up the ladder as he went along, tasting both the bitter and the sweet. Along the way, Stephen rode the ebb and flow from the vibrant 80s through the turbulent 90s. Stephen found what his heart was truly looking for to begin a new chapter in his life. For a free intake interview, you can mail Stephen directly to set up a time at ssnicole, at rogers.com. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to the Hospitality News Network. We'd love to hear from you with questions or comments about the show. Drop us a line at ssnicole at rogers.com. That's ssnicole, N-I-C-O-L-L-E, at rogers.com. Now, back to the Hospitality News Network. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Peter LaFrance. We're halfway through the show talking about craft beers and the emergence of the microbrewery. Fascinating conversation we're having. A lot of information. If you just joined us, this show will be on my webpage within a few hours. You'll be able to listen to its entirety or on Stitcher, Tuned In, or iTunes, and also Google Play. And you could even upload it on Kindle, I believe. So there you go. Peter, where is the craft beer industry going to be going now? You said 12% people interested in craft beers or drinking them. What about five years from now? Where do you see it? <clears throat> it's going to be, uh, for, uh, in, in answer to it, uh, it will... The craft beer groups will grow. There's no doubt about that. But let's define craft beer. 
um, there's a difference between a craft beer and a micro beer. A micro brewery is a small brewery, and there are specific um, amounts that they have that will designate it that. Uh, in the in the beer geek world, uh, the, the use of the word craft has kind of gotten, uh, um, I wouldn't say misused, but it's tough to, 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 to name what a craft beer is. So what I'm going to define craft beer is a um, beer that is uh, produced in less than um, uh, industrial quantities. Because okay. uh, and different flavors. Now that group of beers, <clears throat> there's two of two groups of them. One of them is is produced by the, the large breweries, and uh, uh, there are certain uh, beers uh, that are produced by the, the the major breweries that are positioned as craft beers, and that part of the market is essentially priced to be slightly above premium. And it works. It sells. So to, to use the word craft beer, I believe that the, that perception of the craft beer, that part of the market is going to grow probably to around 15%. Okay. But um, what it means simply is that more flavorful beers will will make up 15% of the market rather than uh, a North American Pilsner style of beer or I think up in your neck of the woods, they call it farmer beer. Yeah, we have like the lagers and the Pilsners and that as well. Uh, I've never heard mm-hmm. it termed as farmer beer, but, you know, craft beers for sure. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah, uh, and you know, so that part will work. The the other thing that is is but is going to to still continue to grow uh, are going to be both the uh, chain brew pubs and the uh, uh, individually owned, the independent brew pubs. Those yes. are going to continue to grow because they can grow in both urban and rural areas. Although in rural areas, it's a little bit difficult because on Saturday nights you'll have the constabulary parked at either end, you know, waiting to pick up Dewey's or or drunk drivers. So that is a problem there. But it gives, pardon me, it gives that destiny, the food destination there. And um, I I believe that that's going to be a tremendous growth uh, and continue to grow. Um, Import beers into, uh, into North America... I'm not too sure about that because of, again, the tax man, tax regulations, um, and that sort of thing. But yes. the the beer market is going to is as a whole uh, is looking at the great pool of beer that that is consumed in North America is going to be pretty much stable. I don't think there's going to be uh, any any growth against wines and spirits. Uh, wines or spirits, um, there's going to be a, a, an interest in the uh, what's called session beers, which are des- are fermented to uh, only around three, six, or four, maybe four point one percent alcohol by volume. Okay, and that is going to be a tremendous growth in the next five years uh, for a couple of reasons. One is the low alcohol, so. Uh, 
it makes it more socially acceptable. Yes. Uh, number two, it costs less to produce, so the brewers are going to love it. Yes. And number three, it brings a whole new concept of SKUs, shelf-keeping units, for, for uh, off-premise uh, and for uh, grocery stores and package stores. Yes. So I think that's going to, if, if uh, it catches, it, that, that's going to be the next one. But I wouldn't guarantee it. Don't bet on it. But I feel that the session beer segment is going to really take off. Well, and you mentioned brew pubs. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people, as opposed to used to be fine dining out there a lot, uh, tablecloths and that, you go into a brew pub and, you know, you don't feel like you have to dress up. Like a lot of people just don't want to dress up anymore and go out. They want to go casual. And, you know, the brew pub lends that atmosphere to, you know, going there casual and just relaxing and kicking back and trying a new beer or something different on mm-hmm. your plate. It's, it's redefined casual dining <clears throat> as a concept, number one. And number two, uh, the point is that uh, what you've just said is correct and that particularly some of the young chefs, uh, uh, men and women, have, uh, have cut their chops and they've, they've, done the, uh, they've done the big hotels, uh, they've done the big uh, the battalion restaurants, they've done uh, the traditional ones, and now they want to fly. And yes. what they're doing, uh, particularly here in the megalopolis, but I also believe in Montreal, and I know for darn sure in Paris, uh, opening restaurants that maybe only have 20 tops, that's it. And yes. they work in the kitchen, and either their their uh, significant other, wife, or whatever works the front of the house, and they have uh, a menu that is you. That's it. That's the menu. You, they went to the market and they got yes. it. And it's this type of dining that has really uh, caught the attention, I believe, not only of of quote foodies, but also of. Um, of people interested in eating some eating in a place that is not extravagant at all. The the the, the price fix pre fee on this menu is probably around only twenty five dollars. Yes. So it's it's and it's their way of thumbing their noses at Guide Michelin and saying, you know, you could take your white tablecloth restaurants and go shove it. Yeah. And uh, I find it amusing. I personally find it amusing. Uh, because in Paris they call these types of places Brooklyn restaurants. Oh, really? And me sitting here in Brooklyn, I kind of find that a little amusing. So, uh, so it's kind en- of fun to to see that. In essence, what we're what uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what we're actually saying is we're reverting back to before fast food when it used to be the corner restaurant and the mom and pop shop or the restaurant mm-hmm. and. You know, where the mm-hmm. owner had a live, interactive uh, conversation with the guest and, you know, built business that way. Exactly. And there is more, there are more, particularly in urban areas, uh, naturally, there are uh, the, uh, the, 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 the young people who are starting out uh, in, uh, in, their, in their beginning positions, uh, have, <clears throat> apparently as far as their economics go, are spending much more on uh, housing and going out to eat. There's very little interest in, in there is some interest in cooking, uh, but there is more of an interest in going out and the, um, the socializing, yes. which flies in the face of the, of the uh, 
uh, cell phone, but uh, I was talking to a journalist up in uh, up in To, and he was saying that there's large uh, buildings going up in his neighborhood, and the restaurant scene is just booming. Yes, because uh, young people are going out and they're interested in beer, in the local beers. They're in, interested in the local food, and in not the chain places, but in these small uh, places that have uh, exactly what we've just discussed. Yes, and the market's there because the buildings are high. Their condos are huge, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of market there to to go after. We got three mm-hmm. minutes before our next break. I want to know beer judge certification program. How did you get that? Uh, this goes uh, back to when they were just uh, just getting started. It, it uh, is uh, you can Google them up. Um, they've naturally gotten much more stringent since uh, I, I applied. <laughs> um, but uh, it, what it was was the I believe it was the first organization to begin to formalize uh, the um, system of uh, tasting beers uh, in a more, I guess, scientific way and putting together uh, competitions uh, so that homebrewers could uh, have a uh, a knowledgeable group of people saying, uh, passing, quote, judgment, end of quote, on these beers. That's great. And it, uh, uh, there are, uh, today there's a, a group out of uh, Chicago that uh, I believe they call themselves the Cicerone Society, which has uh, taken it a step further, and uh, they've got very, very, very organized um, uh, uh, curriculum to, to learn about. You're rated all the way from beer server all the way up to wow. the top Cicerone. So it's a way of... And back then, even, it was a way of, of making order out of, yes. of tasting beers and uh, giving kind of an even playing field uh, to that. And I believe it was uh, adapted from uh, Camera, which is a campaign for real ale in uh, the UK. They had they started doing the uh, organized tastings of the, uh, the homebrewing in particular. Yes. And so the uh, I got my my the lowest rating I could get, but uh, that was some some time ago. But uh, well, that's I've still got it. That's fascinating because I never heard of a of that program. But uh, I've seen Cicerone out there, and I've wondered what it was. But uh, if anyone out there is interested in pursuing a career in a beer judge uh, environment, uh, that would be a good good thing to Google up and have a look at. Exactly. Peter, we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to t- talk after the break uh, a little bit about your books coming out and what you've done so far. Uh, you know, uh, publishing wise, uh, you've written a couple awesome books, so or published a Super. couple awesome books. So, right after the break, after two minutes, we're going to be back with Peter LaFrance. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Do you love to travel? Do you love adventure so much that when you read about it, you cannot stop until you have finished? Most of all, though, do you like to read a memoir that is totally honest and doesn't cover up anything? The author just tells it like it is. 
Steve and Nicole's first book, You Only Live Once, will fulfill your wish. Whether you're thinking of a career in the hospitality industry or just want to read a personal, upfront, no holes barred memoir, this book will whet your appetite. Go to stephennicole.com to order your copy or email him directly for an autographed copy. That's Stephen Nicole, N I C O L L E.com. A life coach, Stephen Nicole, can be contacted to help you get what you want in life. 17 years from the time he took a bartending course, Stephen traveled around working in the hospitality industry, moving up the ladder as he went along, tasting both the bitter and the sweet. Along the way, Stephen rode the ebb and flow from the vibrant 80s through the turbulent 90s. Stephen found what his heart was truly looking for to begin a new chapter in his life. For a free intake interview, you can mail Stephen directly to set up a time at ssnicole, at rogers.com. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to the Hospitality News Network. We'd love to hear from you with questions or comments about the show. Drop us a line at ssnicole at rogers.com. That's ssnicole, N-I-C-O-L-L-E, at rogers.com. Now, back to the Hospitality News Network. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hospitality Industry News Network. We're with Peter LaFrance. I wanted you. To, I wanted to ask you, Peter, about uh, Cooking and Eating with Beer that was published in 1997. Back then, there wasn't a lot of books about beer and food pairing, for sure. What made what made you come up with that idea? It was a great idea. Uh, well, it uh, it uh, I'll get the the long story of it is um, it came out of the first book, Beer Basics, and Beer Basics happened because at that time we're talking. Uh, 1993. Uh, um, at that time, I was working uh, for the Beverage Network, uh, Beverage Media Network uh, in uh, New York, which was an organized, a group of, I believe it was 16 maybe magazines that covered the United States. It was the um, uh, beverage alcohol price books mainly. And I was editor there for, for three years, and then the, the publisher decided I'd make a much better author than an editor, so he allowed me to, to follow my star. No, he fired me. <laughs> and so I ended up uh, wa- walking down to the competitor and working there for a few months. But at the same time, my sister was at Bantam Doubleday and uh, Special Sales and was leaving her job, so she was taking the people out to lunches uh, and saying goodbye. And we met one at the Oyster Bar in Grand Central, and she'd forgotten that she'd asked another person to come visit, uh, to, to come lunch 
uh, a woman from John Wiley and Sons. The woman had no idea my sister had a brother that he wrote or that he knew anything about beer. And it was coincidental because Wiley had just published Wine Basics by Dewey Markham. And they had beer basics in the catalog, but apparently the author had fallen through, so they really needed somebody. And I presented a book proposal, was told to present a book proposal to an editor, and I did. And a book proposal is usually 30 or 40 pages with all the statistical breakdown of your competition and everything. And mine was, I think, four paragraphs altogether. And Beer <laughs> and so I was given a, a, a less than a year to write Beer Basics. Uh, but I did mainly put in, could do it because most of it was in the bottom drawer that I'd been uh, putting together uh, over the last uh, couple of years of, of working at uh, Bev Media. So I, I had all, a lot of material there to start with. If you're in the food industry, I had a, a great, huge garde manger, and all I had to do was just set up the mise en place and I was ready to roll. And it rolled, except for the chapter on food and beer. And I started talking, uh, the Waldorf Astoria, to start with, uh, actually had beer dinners there uh, with uh, Sam Calgione from Dogfish Head, and, but beforehand. And uh, so they were, they were a lot of chefs interested in beer, even back then. Uh, 1995, and uh, it just grew and grew, and so I said to my uh, editor, what am I going to do with all these pages? And she said, well, we we'll to turn them into another book. So we uh, would put it together, uh, it, and that took another year to do, and when we were finished, uh, I presented the manuscript, and I believe it was two days before it went to print, the art director called me up and said, you know, Peter, we're 20 pages short. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? Is that right? And he said, yeah, you know, if we, is, what can you do? And I said, well, I'll think about it. And so I, I took a, a thought, oh, I hung up and took a thought, and reached into the files, and I found a folder that had uh, the um, menus from the beer dinners that had been mentioned in the book. And on the back of these menus were the tasting notes from that particular go. dinner. So I simply picked the file up, took the subway into uh, Manhattan, and put it on the editor's t- on the uh, editor's desk. And I said, "Well, here's your 20 pages." And he said, "Wow, I only talked to you an hour and a half ago." I said, "Well, yeah, you know, but, you know, I, I can do it." So there was where the the final book went in. But the interviews. I interviewed, oh, geez, I guess around 150 people altogether, about three-quarters of them via phone, but the rest of them in person. And wow. the, taste, the, the testing the recipes was the real challenge. Um, it's particularly, it was at that time, my daughter was, I think, 12 or 13. Uh, my wife and I, I mean, you can only so much food. Well, I was... Uh, huh. uh, I, I met most of the neighbors in our apartment building, and I live in a 15-story building. So inviting them in, would you, would you like to taste this? Would you like to taste this? Oh, yeah, okay. Nice. So um, that was the, the fun part of writing, cooking, and eating with beer. And into, I wanted to make sure that, it, that most of the voice was the chef's voice, uh, not mine. I wanted them to yes. tell the story. 
yes. about the food and, and the beer working together and why. That was the real key to it. So you have a new book coming out. Uh, it's going to be, uh, what's it called again? It's five gallons of beer that changed America forever. And when's that due out? <clears throat> I should be finished with it uh, September of next year, so I guess it would be uh, six months later from that. We'll, we'll, it'll see the light of day, so we're talking as 17 now, 2017. Now, Peter, we're coming to a close almost. I want people to know how they can get information on where to get your books and your, and your blog and so on. Could you just tell us? Absolutely. Uh, for any information, uh, you can uh, contact me uh, at beerbasics.com or you can directly contact me at peter.lafrance, capital L-A, capital F-R-A-N-C-E, uh, at beerbasics, one word, dot com. Uh, both, uh, both books are out of print right now, but you can get them on Amazon, and I do have copies of Cooking and Eating with Beer available. I think I have uh, about uh, two or 300 copies left okay. <laughs> of that one. So if anyone would like a copy of that book, I would certainly, uh, you can contact me uh, via email or uh, the uh, contact number or the contact uh, section that I have at beerbasics.com right there on the front page on the left-hand side of the front page. And by the way, uh, you're on Twitter as well? Uh, yes, that's Beer Basics. And Beer Basics, okay. You know, that beerbasics.com, you know, it's just a awesome, phenomenal information site and all about beer. Uh, I commend you highly for it. Uh, it certainly is an influencing blog in the industry. And, uh, Thank you uh, very congratulate, much. Congratulations on that. For, uh, Peter, it's been a, it's been a blast uh, talking to you, listening uh, all about, you know, you're, you've, you're back, you go back a few years, so it's really interesting how to, the emergence of the microbreweries uh, and the uh, craft beer started. And you were there at the beginning, really, and your insights are, uh, were quite, uh, quite uh, to the point, I would say, uh, how it all well, started. Thank you. Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, it was a pleasure to be, uh, to be here, and uh, once again, uh, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. My name is Stephen Nicole, the Hospitality Industry News Network. If you've missed this show or you just turned it on, all the shows are archived on my webpage. This one included will be on in two or three hours. Archived 24-7, on demand, anytime you want to listen to any of the shows. We've had some great ones so far. Go to my webpage on voiceamerica.com. Variety Channel. We air every Monday at noon Eastern Daylight Time. If you missed the show, we also have it available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Tuned In, Google Play, and you can even upload it on Kindle. If you want to contact me, you could contact me at Stephen Nicole, ssnicole at rogers.com, Stephen Nicole on LinkedIn, and Stephen Nicole on Twitter, and you only live one time on Facebook. All right? Have a great, happy Thanksgiving, Canada, and we'll see you next week with a new show. Have a great week.
Thank you for tuning in to the Hospitality News Network this week. Please join your host, Stephen Nicole, next Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.